I say God is good, you say all the time. And when I say all the time, you say God is good. God is good. And all the time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Thank you, Dr. Aiken, for uh, that uh, very kind introduction. And uh, I uh, just want you to know, brother, that not everybody can graduate from the University of Kentucky. Uh, but we love you, brother, and thank you so much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful day. This is a day that you have made, and we rejoice, and we are glad in it. Father, just as this morning, as we think about the nation of Haiti and Afghanistan, Lord, the turmoil that's going on in those countries, Father, we want to pray for them. Lord, as we think of the COVID-19 outbreak that continues to ravage our lands, Father, we ask that you would heal that. And Father, we just pray that um, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would please you. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Exodus. Exodus 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Exodus 23, those of you watching online, thank you for watching us at the 11 o'clock service, and we're so grateful to have you join with us today. Exodus 23, we're going to begin in verse 20. Would you stand as we read God's Word this morning for a three-hour sermon? <laughs> Exodus 23, verse 20. God's Word says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. You may be seated. We're talking about vision, we're talking about direction, and in an ADD, ADHD world, it's hard to pay attention. Uh, I don't know about you, but I struggled with Simon Says in elementary school. But I, have you ever had to follow behind somebody to a place you've never been before in a vehicle? Uh, the other day, I was uh, with a friend of mine, and, and I was out of town, and, and we were going to meet at a, at a shared location, and I was to follow him to a restaurant that he had chosen. He didn't give me an address. He didn't give me a name. All he said was, follow me. And so we left the parking lot where we were, and he began to just take off, like immediately uh, just took off like a crazy guy. And he, he was almost like God was with him and the devil was chasing him. I mean, this guy was flying. And so we get to a red light, and um, he just flies on through it. Uh, me, you know, trying to be a careful pastor that I am with uh, my church's uh, bumper sticker on the back of my truck, I stopped at the red light. And well, he continues to move on, and I have to kind of go really kind of crazy fast. I was driving like Ricky Bobby, just trying to get with him, and weaving and bobbing and going this way and that way. And I will tell you, it, it took all that I could. And finally, we were on the right-hand side, and he just decided that it was time to go three lanes over to the left side to get to the restaurant. And so there we were. I had to do that. And well, long story short, we pulled into the parking lot of this restaurant, and I'll be honest with you, it was, it's a very expensive restaurant. Uh, I've eaten there once before in my life, and, and I was like, good grief. And so here I am, I'm getting out of the car, getting out of my truck, and I'm so mad that, you know, if I was a spit, the grass would die. And I was about to tell him about Jesus until he looked at me and said, hey, man, uh, this is one of my favorite restaurants, and I just want you to know something. I'm going to pay for dinner tonight. 
Well, my frustration turned to joy. Because <laughs> one of my love languages is free. And that frustration melted when we got to that destination because the destination was better than the frustration. Well, you know, when it comes to following God, the journey may not make sense to you, but it makes sense to God. And, and even though we may go through many dangers, toils, and snares, and a lot of frustration, the destination is worth any and all frustration we may experience. Well, we're in maybe for you an odd passage of Scripture in Exodus chapter 23, and we're at the very beginning of the Exodus. God's people have just been led out of Egyptian bondage, and they are now on a journey of a lifetime. They had been in bondage for 400 years. They had just witnessed the 10 plagues in Egypt. They had just escaped the fury of Pharaoh through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. And they are now waiting at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've been waiting for Moses for at least 40 days to give them a fresh vision for their future. God is going to speak through the man of God, Moses. And as Moses finally comes down that mountain, he comes with a fresh word of God. He comes with a covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That word covenant just means promises. And he comes with these precious promises. As we sang earlier, he is a God of promises. But with those promises also came warnings. And so as God gave a word to his people about their future at that time, so today God is using them as an example to us to give us a word today. As I read this passage of Scripture, I see parallels in this text to the Christian life. I see it to sanctification. And I also see it to where we are this moment as we are seeking God's will for the future. And what I hope that you and I learn today is this, is that God challenges and encourages us to follow Him by giving us His presence to guide us and His promises to sustain us. God challenges and encourages us to follow him by giving his presence to guide us and his promises to sustain us. So let's just dive on in. Number one, God's presence will guide us to the place he has prepared for us. Verse 20, the word is behold. God here says, I need you to pay attention. There are many competing voices that are vying for our attention that drown out the voice of God. And, and I don't know about you, but during this week, there's been a lot of distraction. Have you all experienced any distraction this week? I feel like every time I just, just wake up, I'm immediately distracted by something on my phone or some email or something in the news or something happening in the world. Well, God wants to get his people's attention. God wants to get your attention. And God has a keen ability in getting our attention. God says, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. God here is telling these, this new budding nation as they've just been exodus out of Egypt with millions of people, young and old, carrying everything they own with them to a place they've never been before. God says, I am going to send someone to meet your greatest needs. What was their greatest needs? They needed direction and they needed protection. And God says that I'm going to send an angel before you. Notice he doesn't say I'm going to send him behind you. I'm going to send him before you. I'm going to send him in front of you. Why? Because the enemies that were behind them in Egypt had all been defeated. There were new challenges in front of them that were unknown to them but known to God. And God says, I'm not going to give you protection just from the back. I'm going to lead you in the front because all your enemies in the past have been defeated. My friends, it is easy for us to live in the fear of the past 
Some of us live in the bondage and shackles of past sins, past problems, and past regrets. And yet in Christ, all of our enemies have been defeated. God is the God of the past. He's the present God of the present and the future. And the same God who defeated the enemies in the past is in front of you defeating your enemies in the future. God says, look forward. And he says, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God brought them out of Egypt to bring them into this place. God saved them out to bring them in. God always saves his people out of to bring them into. But yet, here's what you have to understand. What God has for his people is not based on who they are, but based on who he is. God's people are going to go to a place that they could have never gotten to on their own. What is this place? It's the place I have prepared. To the Israelites and to God's people then, that was the promised land. That was the plan that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. While in Egypt, all that God's people knew was bondage. But God had a place for them that they had hoped for but never ever imagined possessing. Yet this place had always been on God's mind and had always been on God's heart for his people since the beginning of time. And so he says, I'm going to send an angel before you to get you there. Now, this angel has an incredible track record in the book of Exodus. This angel has a track record for both direction, as we see in Exodus chapter 3, the angel appearing to Moses out of the burning bush gave Moses direction to be the leader of God's people to deliver them from bondage. This same angel that spoke to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, giving him direction, is the same angel in Exodus 14 that gave God's people protection. After Israel had left Egypt, this angel stood between Pharaoh's army and God's people as a force field to protect them as they made their way through the Red Sea. So who is this angel? Well, he's obviously a warrior angel. Is this angel a human? Is he a messenger? Is he Moses? Is he Joshua? Or is he a literal angel? Is he Michael or is he Gabriel? Or is he a metaphor for God's guidance? Is he Google Maps or Alexa or Siri? Well, as you read this text, the angel is personal. The angel is more of a human, more than a human, but also more than a mere angel. If, if you read further in the text, you'll notice something in verse 20 and verse 21. You, you'll see in verse 20, God says, I send an angel... Verse 21, listen to him. As you read that in our English translation, it makes it sound like God and the angel are distinct. But then you get to verse 22, and God says, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. All throughout this passage, all the way to verse 32, there's this back and forth between he, that's the angel, what the angel will do, and I, what God will do. So what the writer is showing us, what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us, is that in some mysterious way, the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. Now we also know that this angel is closely associated with God. His name is in him. This angel also has the ability to forgive and not forgive sin. Now one of the things that we know in Scripture is Mark chapter 2 tells us that only God can forgive sin. Masood, who is a friend of mine in Sanford, who is a Muslim, but yet he attends my church almost every Sunday. His children go to Awana. 
He has no problems with me teaching that Jesus is a miracle worker. He has no problems with me teaching that Jesus is a great teacher. But when I have spoken to him about Jesus as being able to forgive sins, he's got a problem. Because in his mind, in his understanding, only Allah can forgive sin. So in my mind, as we think about this, the angel, I believe, may have been the pre-incarnate Christ. Why? Because who else has the authority to forgive sin? Who else is a guardian and guide that speaks the word of God with authority? Who has God's name in him? Who else is a visible manifestation of the invisible God? And so as the people journeyed to the promised land, they knew that God was in their midst. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because God's presence in our lives is what we need to help us get to where God is leading us to go. If there ever was a day in which we need to feel and experience and know that God is with us, it is today. In the midst of the uncertainties of life, in the midst of disrupted plans, bitter disappointment, and new challenges that arise every day, we need God's presence to guide us, to guard us, and to give us peace as we go to the place God has planned for us. See, God's presence gives us what we need to go where he calls us to be. Brother Lawrence coined the phrase, practice the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. And what that means is to be consciously aware of God's presence through his Holy Spirit, to meditate on God's word, to praise and thank God regularly, to share your fears and your grief with him, and to spend time in prayer to the God who is there. We need to practice the presence of God in these perilous days. But yet, what I want you to understand that when you and I look back on our life to where God has brought us from, at that moment, we may not have seen his hand of guidance, but as you reflect on it, you see his hand everywhere. Can anybody testify to that? All my life, he has been faithful. All my life, he has been so, so good to me. All along the way, my friends, God has been guiding and preparing your lives, leading you and I to this moment right now to be where he would have us to be. Sometimes it's not until you are on the other side that you realize that God was with you in the middle and all along the way. And so, my friends, in the midst of what God has been doing these past two years at First Baptist Naples, do you understand that God has not abandoned you? That God has not forsaken you? That God's presence has been with you even though you didn't see it? And my friends, the God who has got us here is the same God who is going to get us there. The God who got Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea and to the foot of Mount Sinai is the same God who's going to get them to the promised land. And so whatever you have gone through in your life, God has been preparing you and guiding you to where he is taking you from this moment and beyond. God has been preparing you for what he has prepared for you. Now, sometimes we don't like to wait. I don't necessarily like to wait. Do you like to wait? Nobody likes to wait. 
But yet, my friends, we have to understand that we are nowhere near ready for the things that we think we're ready for. But yet God is preparing us. As I think about God's presence, you know, uh, this process for my family in discerning whether God was leading us to come here has been hard. Uh, we are potentially leaving a church that we love very dearly. I know some of them are watching, maybe even at this moment, and I love you guys. But I want you to understand that we really, my family and I really wrestled with what God's will was in this. And, and it was on July the 4th when the search team hadn't made their final decision, but yet they were very close to that I was struggling. God, what is your will? How can I know your will? And I was about to preach on July the 4th at the 930 service. And in my office area, there's this little area that people bring different things to me all the time and, and the very generous, very loving church. And so there was a blue bag, a Kentucky blue bag, unmistakable in the front office area. No name on it, just a blue bag. And in that blue bag was this book, a cloud by day, a fire by night, finding and following God's will for you. Now I'm not a mystic, nor am I a son of a mystic. I began to read the book. And it's written by a guy named A.W. Tozer. You may or may not be familiar with Tozer. He wrote a great book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And I began to just to read the first few pages. And it starts out talking about his angst, his anxiety, and his thoughts that God was using in his life to move him from being the pastor in Indianapolis to being a pastor in Chicago. I said, wow. I began to move forward and God began to choose this book to shape and help me think through God's will for my life. And one of the passages that spoke volumes to me is found in the third chapter in which Tozer says this, if we are open to the Holy Spirit, he will lead us on the pathway. A destiny he has in mind for us. At this point, we may not fully know what that is. We may not know where God is going, but as long as we're following the Lord, we have nothing to fear. Notice this last line. This, this is the last line that got me. As we let go of our past, we can get a firm grip on the future that God has for us. As we let go of the past, the angel goes before us. As we let go of the past, we can get a firm grip on the future that God has for us. God's presence is guiding us to the place he has prepared for us. Secondly, God's promises will sustain us as we obey what he tells us. Verse 21 and 22, the angel, God says here to Moses, to us, pay attention to the angel and obey his voice. Two times God tells us that. God says, I am personally giving you my presence to get you to the place that I have prepared for you. Listen to him. Follow his directions. As you read verse 22, you get this conditional language, if and then. If you, if you carefully obey, then I will do this. I want you to understand that this conditional language is not the basis of the relationship. God's not saying that if you do this, I'll be your God. This conditional language was to be the people's proper response to the language that they already have to the God who has already saved them. 
They obey God not to have a relationship with God, but they obey him because they already have a relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 20, as Moses begins the Decalogue, uh, the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, I, he didn't say, I might be your God or I may be your God. He says, I am the Lord your God. And so this is a different relationship, not for salvation, but from salvation. And so God says, follow my directions. Now, I want you to understand that when it comes to direction, there's a great difference between GPS and God. Some of you that are Apple people, you use Siri, you speak to Siri, and here's what you have to understand. Siri doesn't love you. You ask Siri if she loves you, and she will say, no, I respect you. Those of you Android, Google, Google people that use and talk to Alexa, those you green bubble people in the text message thread, that we pray for you daily, <laughs> for your salvation. If you ask Alexa, Alexa, do you love me? She will say, I do not have human love figured out quite yet. Siri and Alexa may give you directions and commands, but not out of a heart of love. But when God gives you directions and commands, it is out of his great love for us, for he has greater purposes for his glory. And because his purposes are for God, they are for our good. Verses 22 through 27, God makes precious promises to his people. We don't have time to read all of them, but we will walk through them. He says in verse 22 that I promise that I will be an enemy to your enemies. In other words, God says, if they mess with you, they're messing with me. If they put one of you in the hospital, I'm going to put them all in the morgue. His second promise is to give them a land, to give them the promised land. This land is your land from the mountains to the prairies from the oceans white with foam, from sea to shining sea. And then he says that I will provide your needs for you. He says that I will uh, bless your bread and your water. I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. In other words, God says, I'm going to provide all your needs. God gave commands with promises, and he gave promises with commands, and these promises with commands were to fulfill God's purposes. I love Disney. How many of y'all love Disney? Anybody in the house love Disney? I know a few years ago, Southern Baptists weren't supposed to say that, but I love Disney. My wife doesn't as much as I do. She loves Disney movies, but she doesn't love going to Disney World. So we have annual passes. Um, we, we love Disney, and, and even just thinking, through, you know, Naples is far from Disney. It's a big prayer request. <laughs> and so on Fridays, we're a homeschool family. They're in Brumback Academy. Um, um, and so I would take them on Fridays, the kids, to Disney so that my wife can have a day, right? Praise God. And I don't know if you've ever taken three kids by yourself to Disney, but it's an adventure nonetheless. So we get in my truck and we drive down to Disney and I come with, with some rules. There's some directions. Uh, here are the following rules. If you want to have a great time at Disney with dad, you must, number one, listen to me, follow me, don't fight, don't whine, don't complain. Don't pinch, don't poke, don't prod. No kissing, no cussing. Don't complain. 
if you do this, my children will have a fun time. This will almost be a yes day. I will buy you a cookie sandwich off of Main Street for the glory of God. I will take you on whatever rides that we can get on that you want to ride. I will buy you a toy or a t-shirt. But if you do not obey, all the promises from your father are null and void. So my promises to them should empower and motivate their obedience to me. Well, you can wonder what happened. So God here demands two things of his people. God says, listen, I'm giving you precious promises so that you obey me. This should be the motivation for obeying me. Yes, you should obey me because I'm your God, but you should obey me because of these precious promises. And so he says, number one, do not bow down to the false gods, to the idols of the people. And then number two, destroy the idols and destroy the altar. So God here has made some precious promises. God has said, listen, I'm never going to give you up. I'm never going to let you down. I'm never going to run around or desert you. I'm never going to make you cry, never going to say goodbye, never going to tell a lie or hurt you. Just follow me. Just obey me. And all these promises are yours. You think that would be simple, right? I mean, who cares about some wooden statue that somebody's great-grandpa carved out of a tree he found on the side of the road? But yet the allure of idolatry in that day is strong, and so is in our day. Tim Keller says that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and the imagination more than God. Anything that is central and essential to your life that you, should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. Why was idolatry so alluring to ancient peoples. Well, Doug Stewart, who is a commentator on the Old Testament and particularly on the book of Exodus, speaks of the allure of idolatry, and he gave at least nine reasons why it was alluring. We're not going to go through all nine, but he says, number one, it felt guaranteed. Idolatry was alluring because if you just say the right words, then your God shows up. It was easy. Number two, your God required little of you other than you show up and sacrifice. And so to be a good Canaanite, You didn't have to live a particular way. All you had to do is just show up, put meat on the altar, and leave. I mean, that seems very appealing, doesn't it? Just to show up, worship, and then live however the devil you want to live with no worries from the gods. It was convenient. In ancient days, there was a God on every corner. So there were religious franchises all over the place that met whatever needs you had and fit whatever lifestyle you wanted to live. It was normal. The only people who didn't have a religion like this was Israel. Israel was the weirdos. Everyone worshiped and bowed down to gods and goddesses. But you know what I think the kicker is? It was fun. I mean, think about this. When you worshiped your ancient God, when you worshiped your God, you worshiped them by bringing meat. That meat was then roasted. It was a barbecue. And you ate whatever, to worship your God, you ate whatever leftovers the God didn't eat. And guess what? He didn't eat much. There would be drinking. There would be sexual immorality. It would be like a Texas Day Brazil drinking party. Seemed fun. See, the idols and the worship of the idols may have changed 
but the attraction to idols is the same. We look to things that we feel are guaranteed, easy, convenient, normal, and fun to give us value, meaning, identity, and protection in life other than God. We worship and serve the created rather than the creator. We make idols out of almost everything. Retirement accounts, sports teams, fitness, political candidates, social media fame, academic approval, entertainment, food, religion, even religious leaders. God here in this text is saying that my promises to you are far better than any promise that any local Canaanite idol can make you, and therefore you should be 100% loyal and obey only me, not them. Here's the problem. The, the, The idols promise everything that we think we want and deliver nothing that we really need. God's promises are what should sustain God's people to obey him, and yet we, like Israel, struggle. And we struggle because God does not always do exactly how and when we want him to do. We want instant gratification. We want things to be quick. When we think of things for God, we want microwave, God thinks crockpot. And often when we want to play checkers, God's playing chess. God says in verse 29, he says, I'm going to do all these precious things. But notice this little caveat that he gives in verse 29. He says, I will not drive them out, all these people. You have the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Pezzarites, and the Jebusites, and the Termites, and all these different things he's going to get rid of. And he says, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. He says, listen, when you guys come to the land, it's not going to be complete, instant, total victory. Victory is guaranteed, but it's going to be little by little. Verse 30 says, little by little, I will deliver you. I will drive them out. Verse 30, he says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you. Little by little. Why? Why wouldn't God just completely just obliterate all of those people? Because the people of God weren't ready for that challenge. They weren't ready for it. God is is saying in this text that his promises must sustain them in the little by little. Here's, Here's what you have to understand, that if God wanted to, he could take us to glory the moment we got saved, but yet God had a greater and better plan. And that greater and better plan is a slow process. And that slow process teaches us to depend more and more on him and less and less on us. This process called sanctification refines our character and conforms us to the image of Jesus. And so as God is moving in the little by little, don't give up, don't compromise, don't quit because God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. I know in the past two years that you have had this tension in your mind, should I stay or should I go? Should I go to another church or should I stay here at this church? And many of us have this temptation to want to go after things that we think are moving faster. Some of you are concerned and worried, and yet what I want you to understand is that God in the little by little is moving things. God has brought you, he has been preparing you for what he has prepared for you. Some of you in your marriage relationships, you begin to wonder, you know, it started out as an ideal, it turned to an ordeal, and now you're looking for a new deal. (laughs) And you begin to think, you know, what am I doing, God? And here's what you have to understand, that in the little by little, if you're following him, God is moving in your life. Some of you with your kids and your grandkids, you are wondering, God, what's going on with these kids? But in the little by little, you constantly point them to Jesus. In the little by little, God is moving. Don't despise the little by 
little. See, the promises of God are just history that hasn't happened yet. God is steady at work, and God has been steady at work in your church. And the little by little. Verse 31, God tells them the borders of the promised land. From the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates. It would take centuries, almost a millennia, before Israel would come remotely close to possessing the land that God promised. And it wouldn't happen until King Solomon, and he didn't even get all the land. King Solomon was a great warrior and a great king, but he did not follow God completely. He was flawed. He bowed down and worshiped the false gods. And I want you to understand, whatever leader you have, he is not perfect. She is not perfect. Whatever leader is out there in the world, they are sinful people. And Solomon would have a long line of kings that would follow him, that would struggle to follow God, with many of them succumbing to idolatry like Solomon did. If you know the Israel, if the history of Israel, the people of Israel failed to follow God. They failed to keep their allegiance. And the result was, is they lost the presence of God and they lost the land that God promised them. They lost it all. And Israel fell into darkness and hopelessness in captivity in Babylon. But yet, in time, little by little, God was working behind the scenes to fulfill his promises even though Israel couldn't keep their end. See, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, what I want you to understand, and I am not saying, God is not teaching through this Old Testament Exodus text that if you obey God, you'll never have any problems and you'll never suffer. God here is not, this is not a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it text here. He is not saying that if you follow and serve God, you'll never miscarry and your bank account will always be full. No, that's not what God is saying. Don't take Exodus 23 and start claiming the promises of God there as your promises. Because the promises of God in Exodus 23 were given to a specific people at a specific time for a specific purpose, and that was the ultimate eternal purpose of God and bringing about Abraham's greatest blessing, Jesus Christ. These promises were for Israel to bring about a greater purpose through the greatest person to bring us, you and I, to the greatest promised land. And centuries after these promises, and centuries after these warnings, a son of Abraham, a son of David, would speak to God's people and to us and say this, let not your hearts be troubled. You that believe in God believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am there you may also be. See, Jesus is guiding you 
through the person of the Holy Spirit to the place He has prepared for you. And His promises of this prepared place should sustain you for the work ahead of you. Because the promised land isn't here. The promised land is the place he has prepared for us. And so regardless of your frustrations or your, advoc- or your aggravation, the destination is worth it. Let me end with this. Put your seatbelts on, tray tables in an upright and locked position. God has incredibly blessed this church as you have followed him to the greater promised land. You have had tremendous pastors. And the responsibility that you may be placing in me and on me to lead you is tremendous. But I have good news. I am not the hero. The staff is not the hero. The lay leadership is not the hero. Jesus Christ is the hero of this church. I will not be a perfect pastor. You will not be a perfect church, but he is a perfect savior. And by God's grace and in his will, if we move together in the days ahead, going to the place that God has prepared for us, don't look to me. I won't look to you. Let us all look to Jesus. All that God wants is that we surrender that we stop bowing down to the idols of this world and surrender wholly to him. Have you ever seen this emoji? For years, Apple tried to say it was high fives. If you text it in, normally it will come up. If you put in pray or prayer, this emoji will pop up. The question is, for those of you that are scholars in the room, and that's a lot of you, is where did we get that from? Where did this become the posture of prayer? Nowhere in the Bible does it say this. There are no emojis in the Bible, unless you have an emoji Bible. And if you do, come see me. I'd like to see it. Anyway, where did this posture, because Jews prayed with hands often up to the sky. I've been to Jerusalem many times. I've been to the Western Wall, Jews to this day. Raise hands and pray to God. Where did this posture come from? Well, it came out of the Middle Ages. It came out of a ceremony called the homage ceremony. In the Middle Ages, you would have kings and kingdoms, and you would have serfs and vassals. And so every year, the king would stand or sit on his throne, and his vassals, those who worked his land, who lived under his jurisdiction, were given certain rights and privileges were called in every year to pledge their fealty, to pledge their loyalty. 
And so the king would be standing there and the vassal would come and they would get on their knees before their Lord and they would put their hands like this. The king's hands were wide open and they would put their their hands like this into the hands of the king and they would look with, they would say with head bowed and eyes closed, they would say, I'm your man. They would pledge their fealty. They would pledge their loyalty. They would get on their knees and put their hand in his hand and say, I'm your man. You are my king. Whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you lead, I will go. If you command me to war, I will even die for you. Whatever it takes, I am your man. Well, Christians in the Middle Ages saw this. They had to participate in this ceremony. And, and they begin to think that, you know, as, as much as they do that, they, they have a higher allegiance. They have a higher authority. There's a higher king. There's a king of kings and a lord of lords. And so the Christian church started a practice. And that is, is that daily, typically, when they prayed, they got on their knees, they put their hands together, they bowed their head, and their mind took them to a higher throne room. And in that higher throne room sat a higher king. And they would say to him in prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm your man, I'm your woman. Whatever you say, Lord Jesus, I will do. Wherever you lead, Lord Jesus, I will go. If it means my death, I will do whatever it takes. You are my king. Well, First Baptist Naples, if we want to see a movement of God, if we want to see healing in this church, if we want to see revival in our land, it starts with us. If we want to reach not only Naples, but the nations for Jesus, it starts when we surrender. And so this morning, I want to call you to surrender. I want to call you to say to God today, Lord Jesus, I'm your man. I'm your woman. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever you say, you'll, I'll do, no matter the cost. And so we're going to do a different response this morning. There'll be no pastors in the front. But what I want to call you to do if you're physically able, is to come down to this altar and get on your knees or however you physically can. Put your hands together and pray to God. If you're not able to do that, you in the pew where you're at can sit down and pray or you can turn and face the Lord in your pew. Would you stand? Father in heaven, have your way. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you come?